Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. On May 25th, 2020, Minneapolis police officers responded to a call from a convenience store. The store clerk suspected that a 46-year-old black man by the name of George Floyd had attempted to pay with a counterfeit $20 bill. Two officers handcuffed George Floyd and attempted to put him in the back of a police SUV. As they struggled to get his tall, handcuffed body into the back seat, two other officers assisted. Frustrated and feeling like the suspect was resisting, an officer by the name of Derek Chauvin yanked George Floyd out of the car, laid him face down on the ground, and pinned his knee against the back of his neck. Spectator cell phone footage and police body cams all tell the same story. For 9 minutes and 29 seconds, Officer Chauvin, surrounded by three other police officers, knelt on the back of George Floyd's neck as he laid handcuffed face down on the pavement. I want my mama, he cried out over and over. Then he switched to, I can't breathe. What we know now is that he wasn't being dramatic or hyperbolic. He really couldn't breathe. After seven and a half minutes of the officer's weight on the back of Floyd's neck, he became motionless and had no pulse. Bystanders were screaming at the officers, warning them that George Floyd was suffocating. Officer Chauvin continued for another two minutes. By the time Officer Chauvin got up after nine and a half minutes, George Floyd was dead. Tired of racially targeted police brutality and fueled by graphic videos from just about every angle, black communities throughout the country began rioting. George Floyd's death had become the latest in a long history of police violence against the black community. I am particularly sensitive to issues of race. My godparents are black. I grew up between Baltimore and D.C. where there's a large African-American population. I am blessed with a wonderful group of black friends. In college, I worked at a teen center for a summer missions trip, and my two partners were black Jamaican Canadians. While I am racially white, my ethnicity is Hispanic Latino. In my early days as a pastor, I worked very closely with two Latino churches to help them join our denomination. That exposure to diversity has been essential to my formation as a Christian. I love diversity. I especially love diversity in the church. Here's the problem I found, though, as a Protestant. Most Protestant churches in America are completely segregated. For the most part, if you're white, you go to a white church. If you're black, you go to the black church. There are exceptions, of course, and there are people that intentionally break the color barrier, but it's rare. And this isn't a new phenomenon either. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called this out on Meet the Press in 1960. Listen to what he had to say. I think it is one of the tragedies of our nation, one of the shameful tragedies, that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is one of the most segregated hours, if not the most segregated hours in Christian America. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Since episode 51, we've been focusing on the line from the Nicene Creed that says, One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Today, I want to continue on the topic of one church by looking at the diversity of the Catholic Church. 
Like most everything else that occurred in 2020, George Floyd's murder and the subsequent riots didn't bring us together as a nation, but pushed us towards our politically polarized corners. In fact, some of the most racially insensitive comments that came across my social media feed were propagated by evangelical Christians. I began to long for something radical. George Floyd's death happened as many church doors remained shuttered during COVID. What would happen if when churches reopened, we didn't have white churches and black churches and Latino churches? What if these pastors decided that for the sake of the greater good, they would merge their racially segregated churches? Would there be challenges? Man, absolutely. But think about it. If church is a place where we intentionally learn how to listen to each other and empathize with those who are different and especially those who are marginalized, doesn't it seem like the church should be the most integrated and diverse place? As the church doors reopened and the race riots waned, I realized my vision was just a pipe dream. The pandemic didn't create a more empathetic world where people deliberately tore down walls, but a more polarized and divided world. It was clear that my vision for a racially diverse church wouldn't be found in evangelical Christianity. I began wondering, is there a church that deliberately functions in a way to promote diversity? That question led me to the Catholic Church. The first Mass we attended as a family was led by a Filipino priest with a heavy accent, which, considering how few minorities there are where I live, it was a welcome sight. A few months later, we went to the cathedral for Mass. When it came time for communion, the young woman next to me frantically jumped up and pushed her way towards the center aisle, causing all of us to contort awkwardly to give her space to pass in the narrow pew. She didn't realize that the ushers were inviting each row forward from the front of the church to the back. Within a couple of seconds, she came back. She quickly pushed her way back to her spot on the pew, and then she asked me in Spanish how communion works. Why she assumed I spoke Spanish, I don't know, but I responded in Spanish, and that whole process made me realize that I had found the diversity I was looking for. In a similar vein, this past Ash Wednesday, we attended Mass at our local mission, It's a small church building with enough seating to squeeze in maybe at most 100 people. I had arrived 20 minutes early, and to my surprise, the church was already quite full, which was unusual. More and more people began pouring into the church. There was no more room in the nave, and so many people huddled around the sides in the back of the church, on the staircase in the entryway, and down in the church basement. I'm not sure the exact number that attended that day, but there had to be close to 250 to 300 people crammed in that little church. And Ash Wednesday isn't even a holy day of obligation. Furthermore, probably three-quarters of the attendees were Hispanic or Latino. Here's an interesting fact. The Spanish-speaking population is such a large segment of the Catholic Church in the United States that many, if not most, seminaries require aspiring priests to learn Spanish so that they can effectively minister to the Spanish-speaking population in their future parishes. Another aspect of increasing diversity in the Catholic Church is the papacy. Of the 266 popes, 217 were natives of the Italian peninsula. That makes some sense considering that Vatican City is located in Italy, and up until the second half of the 20th century, travel wasn't easy. The last three popes have not been Italian. Pope John Paul II was the first Polish pope, Pope Benedict XVI was from Germany, Pope Francis was from Argentina, and the first pope from the Americas. Of the eight cardinals rumored to be the strongest candidates as the next pope, One is from the Philippines, one is from Ghana, and one is from Guinea. I think it's entirely possible that we'll see the first black pope in my time. 
The more I am exposed to Catholicism, the more I see not just how diverse the Catholic Church is, but how much it embraces that diversity. Just recently, the Catholic Church held World Youth Day in Lisbon, Portugal. Portugal is the most Western country to hold World Youth Day since Pope John Paul II implemented it in the 1980s. In 2027, it'll be held in Seoul, South Korea. This year, World Youth Day drew crowds of 1.5 to 2 million people. In the past, it has been as large as 6 million people, making it the largest religious event in the world. This year, attendees from every country except for one, the Maldives, were at World Youth Day. Where else do you see that kind of diversity? If you're a cradle Catholic listening to this, I want you to take a second and appreciate this kind of diversity because this is very rare, if not entirely non-existent in the Protestant world. And I think there are lots of Protestants, at least in my circle, that crave the type of ecclesiastical diversity that you have. If you're a non-Catholic listening to this, particularly a Protestant, I hope what you take away from this episode is that the Catholic Church is a really big tent, not just racially and ethnically, but missionally as well. In an upcoming episode, we're going to look at the various rites in the Catholic Church, but for this episode, I want to touch on the various orders and ministries. You know, in my evangelical experience, when someone has an idea for a ministry or some radical reform, a lot of times they end up starting their own church. This is not the case in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has a ton of religious orders started by individuals with a passion to lead the church in some sort of spiritual formation or reformation. Most have heard of Jesuits, Franciscans, and Dominicans, but there are many, many others, including Capuchins, Carmelites, Carthusians, which, by the way, produce a delightful liquor called Chartreuse, Benedictines, Augustinian canons, Trappists, the list goes on and on. Each of these religious orders began as a result of an individual or a group of individuals' desire to foster some sort of direction within the church. For example, in the 16th century, when an injured Spanish soldier named Ignatius of Loyola had a vision to reform the church, he didn't follow the likes of his contemporaries like Martin Luther, John Calvin, or Huldrych Zwingli in starting their own churches. Ignatius of Loyola started the Society of Jesus, aka the Jesuits. While Protestant leaders were creating a reformation by inviting Christians to schism and disavowing church leaders, particularly the Pope, Ignatius was calling Christians to spiritual reform and to greater unity. Like other religious orders, Jesuits take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. They also take a fourth vow to accept whatever mission the Pope requires. While most take similar vows when entering a religious order, these orders are not the same. They all have different focuses, they carry out their missions in different ways, and they practice different spiritual disciplines. In some cases, they have differing theological viewpoints. For example, the Jesuits tend to focus more on man's free will in the salvation process, whereas Dominicans tend to focus more on God's sovereignty and predestination. I find that to be absolutely fascinating because in my experience, if you believed in predestination, you likely found yourself in a reformed church like a Presbyterian church, whereas if you believed in free will, you likely found yourself in churches affiliated with Baptists or Wesleyans. That, of course, isn't always the case because I, for one, was a Baptist who strongly believed in Calvinism, aka predestination. Protestant denominations remain split over the tiniest doctrinal details. For example, in the Baptist church I grew up in, if someone was baptized by sprinkling, they would have to be rebaptized by full immersion, even though we saw baptism as a symbol. Often, independent churches get started because an individual has a vision for how they want to carry out a particular ministry. 
I've seen time and time again where individuals leave the church over some minute theological disagreement. Let me speak right now to my Protestant brothers and sisters, and I want you to hear what I'm saying. The Catholic Church is an enormous tent, and there is room for you here. Are there certain beliefs that you will have to ascend to? Absolutely. I'm not going to lie or sugarcoat it. But I also think that many of those beliefs are a lot closer to what you believe than you think. I also think that when you're immersed in the Catholic worldview, those beliefs that you don't understand now will certainly make a lot more sense later. In fact, let me say that the Catholic Church could benefit from your perspectives and passions. The Catholic Church does not agree with sola scriptura because it's illogical, a topic for another day, but we certainly could benefit from your love and knowledge of scripture. If you're a predestination person, there's a place for you. If you're a free will person, there's a place for you. If you're a Pentecostal, you would love being Catholic, and there are Pentecostal Catholics out there that speak in tongues and get slain in the spirit and all of that. If some of the Marian devotions make you feel a little uneasy or uncomfortable, you don't have to do them. There's a practice in Catholicism called adoration where we basically kneel and pray in front of the Eucharist. I know plenty of Catholics who feel that that's not really their thing. At the end of the midnight Christmas service, they invited people to come kiss the statue of the baby Jesus. Frankly, I think that statue looks weird, and I'll admit that I'm still a little uncomfortable when it comes to venerating statues and kissing icons. I'm not going to criticize other people that make that a part of their faith experience. It's my own hang-ups based on my past. But there's still room for me in the Catholic Church, and there's a place for you here as well. The Catholic Church has made it clear that ecumenicism is its future. Over the years, the Catholic Church has held ecumenical talks with various Protestant groups like Lutherans and Methodists. The talks are aimed at trying to create understanding and find theological common ground. As I read over these documents that come out of these interfaith dialogues, I find that so many of them fall within the boundaries of Catholicism. In other words, I think Protestants and Catholics often speak different languages, but would be surprised to discover how many of their beliefs are not contradictory. I'm convinced that many of the beliefs inside of much of Protestant Christianity can fit within the Catholic worldview. Diversity is never easy, and the decision to embrace diversity must always be deliberate and bathed in charity. When I was attending that Ash Wednesday service, when it came time for communion, many people remained in their seats, something fairly common in Latino congregations. That forced me to awkwardly climb over people. Furthermore, I had people almost pushing me as I was making my way through the communion line. I was thinking, hey, uh, we're all going to the same place here. But what I need to remember is that the idea and expectation of lines and order like that, like we have in the United States, is very foreign to many other cultures. While that's a rather trivial example, there are other more challenging aspects of diversity. For example, Pope Francis is a Jesuit. In fact, he's the first Jesuit to be elected Pope. Jesuits have a particular way of thinking and speaking, and some of the more liberal-minded Catholic priests are Jesuits. There are many traditional Catholics that think Pope Francis is way too liberal, while there are many Jesuits that think he's way too conservative. The diversity of the Catholic Church extends into politics as well. Coming from an evangelical background, something like 80 to 85% of evangelical Christians consistently vote Republican. When I was a pastor, there were a couple of families in my church that were Democrats, and around election time one year, some of the ultra-conservative members gave them a hard time. In the Catholic Church, there's a lot more political diversity, which certainly creates its own challenges. It's easier to be homogeneous. While the Catholic Church is a beacon of diversity, it's important to acknowledge that the Catholic Church has not been immune from the horrific sin of racism that has been a pervasive stain in American history. 
Frankly, any church that existed during the era of segregation has not been immune from racism. It used to be that black Catholics had to sit in the upper gallery in some parishes and wait until the white parishioners received communion before they could approach the communion rail. In some parishes, priests would even use different vessels to distribute communion to black parishioners. There are stories of priests that preached that if a black person came to receive communion, they would deny them the Eucharist. All I can say about that is, Lord have mercy on their souls. But this is not an American problem, or a problem that just popped up in the last 300 years. One of the biggest challenges since the inception of the church has been racism. We read about some of the conflicts between Jewish and Gentile Christians in the book of Acts and in the epistles. In the 1950s, Archbishop Patrick O'Boyle, the Archbishop of Washington, D.C., mandated that all Catholic churches and schools in the archdiocese had to be integrated. This caused issues because while the Catholic Church was progressive and on the forefront of integration efforts, a lot of the venues the parishes used were not. Imagine having a Catholic gathering at a hotel ballroom where everyone in the parish was invited regardless of race, and then being told at the door of the hotel that only whites were allowed. While the Catholic Church was certainly not immune from racism and segregation, in many pockets of our country it did lead the efforts toward desegregation and racial reconciliation, and it still actively works for continued racial justice today. So why is it that the Catholic Church is so diverse? How has it achieved something most churches do not? The answer I would propose goes back to what we discussed in the previous episodes. Catholics are united through a creedal, liturgical, and social bond. Many mainstream churches have a cult of personality. The pastor establishes the church. He dictates what the church believes. The church is centered around his particular style of preaching and his vision. And the worship band plays a particular style of music that attracts a certain social makeup. That is not how Catholic parishes function. In fact, priests are moved around every handful of years, which prevents the church from becoming a cult of personality. The liturgy isn't focused around the music or the homily, it's focused around the Eucharist. Our beliefs do not revolve around a single person. Our beliefs are shared across the globe as defined in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is a compiled list of beliefs that span 2,000 years across the entire world, across multiple generations. And the ministry of the church is not isolated to a single parish. We are an interconnected church across the globe, from the Pope to cloistered nuns in remote monasteries to world relief charities to local ministries at the parish. Revelation 7-9 says, quote, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no man could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tons, stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus invites us to do God's will on earth as it is done in heaven. If heaven is a place full of diversity, then the church on earth should be a place full of diversity. It needs to be. How can we learn how to emulate Jesus in his compassion and empathy towards those different from us in a Christian community that lacks diversity? Diversity is an essential need of the church and an essential facet of a universal church. Let me end with this. The Catholic Church is an incredibly enormous and diverse tent. There's a place for you here. There's a place for me here. The communion table is not your table, nor is it my table. It's Jesus's table. And he invites us all to his feast, a diverse feast on earth, just as it is in heaven. 
Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it, and patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.